Okay, it's so nice that the audience self-regulated and uh, <laughs> quiet, so this, uh, this gives us an opportunity to actually start in time. It's so nice to see uh, so many of you here. This is the first event of the Hellenic Observatory for, for the year, and it is uh, really nice to see that uh, uh, presumably our speaker, uh, as well as the topic, uh, attracted such a uh, a, a big audience, and we look forward to seeing you in our, in our other events, uh, perhaps throughout the year. Because I have a very very short memory span, I will start with these other uh, events before introducing our, uh, our speaker. We have a very busy program of events in the next couple of weeks, so just uh, tomorrow we have uh, an event at 6.30 uh, tomorrow on uh, a book launch. Uh, a book by Yanis Paleologos, a writer at uh, the newspaper Kafimerini, uh, titled The 13th Labor of Hercules Inside the Greek Crisis. So we're again looking at the, the, Greek, the Greek predicament and the crisis, but from a very different perspective. Uh, and the book launch is an opportunity for a discussion about that. Then the week after, on Monday, uh, the 20th of October, we have another book launch by uh, a colleague who used to be a former student at the European Institute and linked to the Hellenic Observatory, uh, his book on the impact of European employment strategy in Greece and Portugal, a more comparative approach on things that happened before the crisis, but as the crisis was perhaps building up. So this is on Monday, 6 o'clock, and then we resume in two weeks' time from today with our second seminar in this seminar uh, series by Dr. Elizabeth Kirchoglu on crisis and democracy, democracy in crisis, social and anthropological perspectives on the fragility of the social contract. I'm sure you remember all these uh, things, but they're also on our website, and if you're not in our mailing, mailing list, uh, please feel free to uh, uh, drop us an email and, and we will inform you of any future uh, events. Uh, now, as I said, it's a great pleasure to, to have uh, our speaker here today, Professor uh, Eleni Luri, who is also for this term visiting, uh, a visiting professor at the Hellenic Observatory in the European Institute. Professor Luri has, uh, uh, combines uh, the, the two important worlds, the academic world, and she has done excellent uh, academic work uh, as a professor of economics, uh, but also the, the intimate policy knowledge she has served uh, uh, in, in policy positions for many years now. Uh, since 2008, I think, she was deputy governor at the Bank of Greece, and through that she has participated in many uh, policy committees as well, uh, both at the Bank of Greece and at the European Central Bank. And before that, she was uh, director of economic affairs at the office of the prime minister uh, uh, in Greece. Through these things, and especially being in the Bank of Greece uh, throughout the crisis, uh, pretty much, she has, of course, a lot of uh, experience uh, on the policy issues, and this is uh, obviously the topic that she will uh, talk to us uh, today. But as I mentioned, she also has uh, significant, uh, a significant academic record and a lot of experience uh, in that respect. I understand uh, some of the people in the audience are former students. Uh, from the, university, the Athens University of Economic and Business. Um, and I think uh, the, the presentation would also enlighten us not only on the policy issues, but also uh, on the uh, academic understanding uh, of this. Uh, I should say that uh, uh, Professor Eleni Lurie has also another connection to LSE. As she graduated, she did her master's in economics uh, here before moving on to Oxford University uh, for, for her PhD uh, studies. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to the, the presentation on taking stock economic and financial changes since the onset of the global and euro area crisis. So please join me in welcoming Professor Len Lurie.
Thank you very much, uh, Vasily. Uh, first, I'd like to thank uh, the Hellenic Observatory and the European Institute for uh, allowing me to spend my sabbatical term at the LSE again, which is uh, a great uh, uh, pleasure for me to be back at the LSE. I was here at the end of the 70s, and LSE was much smaller uh, by that time, and London much less affluent than it is now. Uh, and, uh, well, so thanks uh, a lot uh, for having me with you. And uh, second, uh, I'd like to give you some, uh, well, uh, explanation about my, my presentation. My main focus is the adjustment of the banking sector, but I'll have, since the banking sector doesn't work on its own, I mean, it works within the economy, I'd like to give first a presentation of the adjustment of the economy in general, and then, which means basically fiscal adjustment and competitiveness adjustments, and then I'll move on to the banking sector. Uh, I have to say, as Vasily said, that uh, the last six years I spent at the central bank, I mean 2008-2014, were really an amazing experience. I never thought in my academic life. Uh, and, and then that was a time I was really an executive. I wasn't an advisor or anything. I mean, there were decisions to be taken, and there were emergency situations very often, and uh, it was um, yeah, an extraordinary period, and uh, I'm, I'm thankful it went uh, well, at least until now. So let's uh, get back to the presentation. Uh, a bit of the, on, on the economy, so uh, the roots of the crisis and what are the developments since the program uh, started. Well, as we all know, entering into the euro area was expected to produce some low uh, cost of capital, low interest rate, and uh, low inflation and at the same time high growth, which really happened. So if you see the diagram, the uh, blue line is the inflation, which uh, moved to the low single digits. Uh, don't forget that in Greece we had used to have inflation before uh, euro in the double digits. And uh, uh, on top of it, we had a very good combination with growth, uh, because uh, growth, as you can see, the orange line averaged almost 4% uh, until, the, of course, 2008. And uh, in this very nice environment, uh, interest uh, rate spreads fell to 20 basis points, which means that if Germany could borrow at 3.5%, Greece could borrow at 3.7%, which shows you how uh, the markets didn't, hadn't grasped the whole of the, of the situation. So, uh, I mean, this is a good picture. Greece seemed to have found the formula for economic success, but beneath the surface, of course, there were problems developing which were left unaddressed. The problems were, of course, what we all know now, which were the large and growing fiscal and external imbalances. So unsustainable fiscal imbalances. Um, you can see in the diagram that uh, fiscal deficits from uh, 2001 to 2009, fiscal deficits almost continuously topped 5% of GDP. And uh, uh, growing deficits were expenditure-driven, as you can see from the blue line, which is the expenditures. The situation worsened considerably in 2008-2009. Uh, what happened, I mean, below this picture, what we can uh, understand what happened is that government spending rose significantly, crowding out the tradable sector, which is, you know, the basis for understanding the competitiveness uh, problem. So fiscal imbalances were structural. How were they stru why were they structural? First, pensions were not, uh, was not a funded system. Healthcare system uh, was not subject to budgetary controls. Tax administration was weaker. 
36% of labor force self-employed, and they pay only very, a tiny bit, 6% of total income taxes. Large underground economy, even the current economist has said that uh, the underground economy is estimated at around 25%. And, of course, clientelistic political system with strong political business uh, cycle. So, in this, within this uh, fiscal background, competitiveness problems uh, grew worse. You can see the two lines, which are, in a sense, like mirroring each other. Uh, you can see competitiveness developing in terms of uh, real exchange, uh, real effective exchange rates. Uh, the blue line, in, uh, which shows that between 2001 and 2009, Greece loss, competitiveness loss against our main trading partners was about 30%. Uh, of course, as unit labor costs rose, Greek exports were losing market share. And on top, rising private consumption sucked in imports. So we had reducing exports, increasing imports. And uh, that means we had a worsening trade um, uh, current account deficit, which, uh, as you can see from the orange line, widened by 8 percentage points between 2001 and 2008. Actually, uh, in, uh, you know, in the first uh, um, course of inter international economics, I mean, we, we learn that uh, if the current account uh, deficit exceeds 5 or 5.5%, I mean, the country has a problem. I mean, in this case, it's, uh, it's obvious that we had a problem for quite a uh, few years since uh, current account deficit was exceeding 5% for many years. Actually, Greece always had um, a current account deficit, but it didn't have to be that uh, high. Uh, competitiveness, another way to see the loss uh, of competitiveness. You can see here the prices of uh, the development of the price of tradables versus non-tradables. The red line is the price of tradables, which remained, the prices remained uh, uh, kind of stagnant. So uh, the, while the prices of non-tradables increased much faster, and uh, that meant wrong incentives, hence tradable sector was shrinking and the non-tradable sector was growing. So, uh, twin deficits. Um, you can see in this diagram we have uh, regressed uh, the current account balance. Uh, we take the 10-year period, 1999 to 2009, and we regress the current account balance on uh, the government, uh, general government balance. Uh, you can see that there is uh, a very positive uh, and uh, significant relationship. And uh, you can see that uh, the countries which are at the top, um, north-west, uh, uh, have twin surpluses, while the countries at the south-east uh, quarter, they have twin deficits. And you can see Greece, which is the outlier again. Greece was the biggest outlier, and of course it needed to improve competitiveness and fiscal balances. Uh, so the debt crisis was an accident waiting to happen. Why were Greece's fiscal and competitiveness uh, problems so dangerous? Because Greece was in a monetary union and didn't have the... I mean, in, in the past, before entering the monetary union, Greece could uh, uh, use the exchange rate uh, tool and recover competitiveness uh, without addressing maybe the, the basic problems, but at least it could recover competitiveness. Now, Greece being in a monetary union... In, uh, it, I mean, the monetary, the ideal monetary union would require fiscal integration, wage and price flexibility, and labor mobility. 
in the absence of fiscal integration and flexible labor and product markets, uh, fiscal discipline was essential and structural adjustment was needed, but it didn't happen. So break out of the sovereign crisis, key events, we had the collapse of Lehman Brothers in September 2008, a succession of uh, fiscal surprises found uh, in, our, uh, in our statistics, particularly after the October 2009 elections. And, uh, well, the collapse of Dubai World gave, you know, ignited uh, the problem in general. So the effect of the crisis on the spreads, you can see the spreads, how they moved. Of course, the blue is the Greek spread. And you can see how, uh, at the beginning of the period, they were so close all in all uh, uh, the European uh, spreads in all European countries, and then you can see how uh, they diverged uh, during the crisis period. Actually, uh, he, today, I don't know if you've seen, there is again a mini crisis, and uh, spreads are um, exceeding 600 again, which means that yields are reaching uh, 7%, which is you know, the, the, the very dangerous uh, uh, area again. So sovereign debt crisis, self-fulfilling debt dynamics, you can see how debt uh, developed. Uh, in 2012, you see debt being reduced because we had the PSI, where Greece semi-defaulted on its, uh, on its uh, debt obligations, uh, but in an organized way, in, in agreement. So uh, we had a reduction, and then since uh, uh, we had uh, more deficits added, being added up to the debt, and since 2008, we have a reducing uh, GDP, which means the denominator is being reduced ever after 2008. Uh, we have this uh, uh, bad debt dynamics. Well, first adjustment program, what did it go off track? The first adjustment program consisted of four main pillars, fiscal adjustment, of course, structural reforms of labor and product markets, tax uh, combating tax evasion, and privatizations. What happened was that the government decided to place all emphasis on the first pillar, and the other pillars were at best partially uh, implemented. Uh, moreover, even this fiscal adjustment, the first pillar, it was decided that fiscal consolidation was to be achieved mainly through the taxes, which means uh, it was achieved mainly through a 60% cost revenue, tax revenue increase, and 50% spending, spending cuts. Uh, Maybe I have to remind you that at this period, the Bank of Greece had uh, published its opinion, which was that the, the fiscal uh, adjustment should take place uh, from uh, one-third from tax revenues and two-thirds from uh, uh, expenditure cuts, which was not, uh, which was not uh, adopted, though. Um, so the mix uh, adopted prevented any crowding in, as, how, as both households and companies cut back on expenditure, waiting ever-rising uh, taxes. And of course, the partial implementation of the structural reforms raised uncertainty and led to fears of Grexit. And we had this uh, period of Grexit, which was one of the most uh, stressful periods at the central bank uh, of the country. So uh, as, a co as a consequence of uh, these choices, the recession was much deeper than expected. You can see here we got this uh, data from the Reinhardt and Rogoff uh, paper, and we made own calculation for the Greek case. 
you can see that Greece is really, I mean, uh, nowadays actually is, is closer to minus 25%, the cumulative reduction of GDP. And what's interesting in the Greek case is that uh, the years of recession are longer than in any other case. We have already, uh, we are already in, in the sixth year of recession, and we hope it's going to be the last. Uh, and, uh, you know, let's... Uh, let's, let's hope it will be the last. But six years, as you can see here, it's a very long time for a country being in, in recession. So um, from the onset of the crisis until 2014, what we've seen was uh, a contraction of GDP by more than 24%. One, we lost one quarter of GDP. Actually, now, in real terms, we are back to 2001. The unemployment rate has risen from under 8% to 27%. I mean, the good thing in 2001 was that unemployment was around 12% and not 27, uh, which is uh, all 26, actually, which is today. Uh, well, I mean, this is a very bad uh, uh, picture. Is there light at the end of the tunnel? Well, we hope there is. During the past few years, Greece has made important progress in addressing both the fiscal uh, imbalances and the external imbalances. Recession appears to be bottoming out. You can see the numbers. I took them from the, uh, they were published on Friday. It's the very latest numbers, which Eurostat published because they had again a revision. So what's interesting here is to see that uh, the worst year was really 2011. So, I mean, if there was a curve showing growth over time, you see that the, the depth uh, uh, the bottom of the curve was in 2011, minus 8.9%. It was, it was an awful year. Uh, 2012, minus 6.6. 6. 2013, minus 3.3. Uh, 3. I think this has been... No, no, this is the recent number, 3.3. 3. And you can see how it's, uh, it's uh, approaching zero. And, uh, well, the Bank of Greece has the forecast that uh, in 2014 it will be some a little positive, a little above uh, zero, maybe 0.4, 0.5%. So um, fiscal adjustment, what happened with fiscal adjustment? You can see fiscal consolidation has been striking. Uh, you can see the orange line, the fiscal deficit from 15.7% in 2009 down to 2.1% in 2013 and even lower uh, in 2014, but we don't have the final uh, uh, the final data yet. And if you see the primary deficit, it's uh, actually in surplus, and it's going to remain in surplus in, in this year, in the following year. So, um, and of course, the structural deficit uh, is, has shrunk from about 20% of GDP in 2009 to almost balance in 2013. So uh, the degree of adjustment led to a sharp fall in spreads. You remember these spreads I showed you in the diagram. So we had a sharp fall in the spreads, which allowed or facilitated the return of the Greek sovereign to global capital markets. Hence, uh, okay, we cannot raise, you know, we cannot issue really 10-year bonds, but we can issue shorter-term bonds. So the first issue had to do with a $3 billion uh, five-year bond, uh, which was at a coupon of 4.75, and the sale was almost seven times oversubscribed. Then again in July, Greek government issued a three-year bond, uh, at a coupon of 3.37. And then uh, if we look at the, the T-bills, we have issues of six-month and three-month trade bills, which are, uh, which are always uh, getting um, a lower 
uh, coupon rate, which are always uh, uh, disposed at the lower uh, coupon rate. And uh, this shows uh, the improvement in confidence because of the improvement in, in the fiscal uh, and the external um, uh, balances. So uh, here, you remember when I showed you in that diagram that I told you Greek was the, the worst outlier between deficits. Now we are the best in the sense that we've done the, the, uh, the uh, highest adjustment. Uh, you can see the change uh, that all countries, uh, in uh, all at least problem countries in the Eurozone, had to proceed with uh, changes in their uh, cyclically adjusted primary balance. Greece was really uh, the, the, the first uh, country in, in this respect. So, of course, we've seen, I mean, we've done, as I showed you, we were really, uh, I mean, our effort was extraordinary. The effort was extraordinary, but then we had this uh, bad, very bad negative effects on the uh, GDP. So the gap between fiscal effort and the outcome has raised a lot of questions about the size of the fiscal multiplier. And you remember, um, I don't know if you read this IMF reports, etc., about the fiscal multiplier. Finally, it appears that uh, the fiscal multiplier in Greece was higher because, uh, A, we had a low savings rate, lo more, I mean, lower than what they expected, closed nature of the economy, semi-closed nature of the economy, liquidity constraints, uh, and uh, this fiscal consolidation bias in favor of taxes hadn't helped in terms of, uh, because uh, apparently they, the tax multiplier uh, was much higher than the government multiplier with respect to their effect on, on GDP. So we've done all this uh, uh, adjustment, but debt remains high. You can see here how debt remains high. And um, I mean, the latest uh, numbers may be a bit improved, but um, it's, um, it's still very high, the debt. So let's go now to the external. I mean, this is something we have to keep in mind, but debt is extremely high, and we have to do something about it anyway. External adjustment, Greece, let's see what happened to, with respect to external adjustment. Uh, again, you can see here the two uh, lines like a mirror. We have an improvement uh, in the orange line, which is, shows the competitiveness. It reached its highest value in 2009, uh, which means that the current account balance reached uh, almost its, uh, its worst. And then you see how, with improving competitiveness, the current account balance is improving. And actually, in 2013, we, had, uh, we turned into positive, into external account surplus, which has never happened to Greece after the war. So it's, uh, I mean, we always had uh, deficits there, but, um, uh, well, this time we managed to get into a positive territory and will be in positive territory even in 2014. <coughs> of course, if we see how this happened, we can see exports and imports of goods and services. You see that this is mainly the result of a decline in imports and much less a result of an increase in, in exports. So uh, what we can also see, though, uh, having seen the adjustment again in, uh, in uh, competitiveness in the unit labor cost, we can see here that uh, uh, there is um, this... Uh, uh, negative relationship between the change in unit labor costs relative to 35 uh, trading countries and the export performance. 
which means that uh, if you if your unit labor cost falls or if you improve your your uh, competitiveness, then your export performance will improve. So uh, that gives us good signs for improving exports and in even improving even further current account uh, balances uh, in the future. So uh, competitiveness is also being promoted through not only through unit labor costs, through structural reforms, uh, labor market reforms, uh, making the labor market more flexible, uh, reducing bureaucracy, etc. Uh, further measures to liberalize product and labor markets, uh, and as a result, rebalancing is taking place. The non-tradable sector is shrinking, and this is leaving space for a larger tradable sector to flourish. But of course, this takes time, and it's much more slow than we would have uh, thought. Economic sentiment indicator, um, if you can see, it was really below nine, back in the lows uh, since 2009. Uh, May 2013, it exceeded 90 for the first time after four years, and it's been uh, around 100 uh, since then. Uh, PMI, Purchasing Managers Index, um, General Index, New Orders and Export Orders, you can see here. You can see they are all, again, uh, improving. Uh, of course, I mean, we have this, you know, soft patch in the last two months. Huh? But, uh, well, it could be temporary. So the medium to long-term outlook, positive growth expected to return in 2014 because the fiscal drag will decline. Competitiveness gains uh, uh, will further affect export performance. <laughs> Liquidity constraints are likely to be loosened. Supply-side effects of structural reforms will be more evident. And, uh, um, of course, given the cumulative reduction in GDP during the recession, prospects for a growth rebound above potential are uh, strong. Uh, medium to long-term outlook. We know that studies of uh, long-term growth suggest that uh, it depends positively. It depends on openness with a positive sign, inflation, negative sign, investment, positive, government consumption, negative, institutional characteristics, positive. So the current policy is putting the emphasis on uh, working with all these variables in the right direction, i.e. opening the economy, reducing the size of government consumption, improving institutional characteristics, uh, and uh, uh, some estimates suggest that potential growth could be up to 2 to 3 percent per annum. So this is the background. There has been the economic background. There has been an amazing adjustment. Uh, Greece is really the first reformer, in a sense, among the, the Eurozone uh, countries. Uh, this has been done at a very big cost, which is losing 25% of GDP and, uh, uh, in, in, in six years and having 20, suffering 26% unemployment, 50% uh, among young people. So this is the background, but there is, you know, there is this adjustment taking place, so there is improvement there. And now let's see the banking system, which is uh, my focus. So Greek banks were sound during the pre-crisis uh, years. Contrary to other countries' experience, it was the sovereign's weakness that uh, caused problems in the domestic balance in the domestic uh, banking sector. Prior to the outbreak of the crisis, you can see the numbers, the average capital adequacy Ratio was 12%, which is very solid. Aggregate loan to deposit ratio was 104, again, very solid. Net interest income to risk weighted assets, 4.4, again, solid. Greek banks had no toxic assets whatsoever, uh, so they were unaffected in the beginning of the crisis by the US subprime crisis. Um, actually, they were highly competitive by international standards, 
and um, they had uh, extended to the Balkan area, which was opening up since uh, uh, the 90s, which was a very good move. So uh, what we can also see is that they were quite cautious in the sense that private debt to GDP, if you can see here, Greece is, is, is less, is a country that has uh, less than 100% of, uh, of GDP private debt, uh, which means that the banks have been kind of cautious until 2008. Quite cautious, actually, compared with other countries like Ireland or UK or Spain, etc. So Greek banks were sound and cautious, but they were exposed to what? To Greek sovereign debt. So Greek banking system under stress, uh, without break of the sovereign crisis, Greek banks were first hit by a series of, down, of, 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 down, sovereign, of downgrades. The Greek sovereign was downgraded, hence the banks of the sovereign were also downgraded. So they were hit by a series of downgrades. They experienced substantial deposit withdrawals. They lost 88 billion, more than one third of deposits between 2009 to 2012. It's it's an amazing uh, it's it's an amazing you know uh, imbalance. Uh, at the same time, they were cut off from money and capital markets, and while they could not borrow, they had to pay back maturing debt, which was exceeding 40 billion. So they were caught into this you know straight jacket. They couldn't do much. So I think it's um, in this in these circumstances. Of course, the central bank had to step in and provide the banks with uh, funding, with the necessary funding, or with access to the Eurosystem funding. I think it's very interesting to see these two diagrams. They are like the mirror. One is the mirror of, each, uh, of the other. Here you can see how deposits are going down. And here you can see how the central bank funding is going up. So in a sense, as the banks lose deposits and they need liquidity, we step in as the central bank and we provide liquidity which uh, uh, at a certain point is reaching like um, you know, 150, 140 billion, I think. Uh, we reached the highest. What's also interesting, but I cannot uh, show it here, is that uh, this liquidity here is not cheap liquidity. It's not only, it's not provided at the MRO rate, at the monetary financing operations rate of the ECB, uh, because in August 2011, things are so bad that the Greek banks lose their, uh, they cannot put you know, the Greek sovereign uh, bonds as collateral. So uh, they do not have collateral of the quality that ECB wants to provide uh, liquidity at the MRO rate. So what happens is we discover this new tool, the ELA, the Emergency Liquidity Assistance, which is a much more expensive tool. I mean, they, they, the, uh, the banks have to pay. Uh, it's uh, the, the uh, what they pay is uh, the MLF, the marginal lending facility rate, plus one percent, plus twenty-five, plus one point twenty-five percent higher. So uh, at a certain point, when the MRO says two percent, they have to pay uh, at least uh, one point twenty-five percent more to get. Um, uh, when the MLF is 2%, they have to pay at least 1.25% uh, more to get liquidity. So it's not only that we have to get to step in and provide liquidity, is that this liquidity after August uh, 11, it's becoming much more expensive. And uh, it's not all, of course, ELA, but we reached the point, especially at the, I think it was during the mid-election period of 2012, 
that half of the liquidity provided by the central bank was through ELA, which means it was very expensive. So uh, this is the picture. I mean, you can understand the crisis uh, we, are, we are facing, we were facing. Uh, as, a, as a result of these developments, Greek banks experienced losses. So the losses stemmed, well, first we have the restructuring, the PSI, the deep restructuring of the sovereign debt. In that restructuring, they lose straight 38 billion. And then at the end of 2012, with a debt buyback, they lose another five. So it's, it's a huge uh, pool of, uh, of, uh, of losses there. So first, they have the deep restructuring of the Greek sovereign debt. Then they have the significant increase in the cost of risk, meaning that the, with the crisis, non-performing loans are increasing. So you can see in the, at the bottom diagram, you can see how the non-performing loans are increasing. And actually today, they're around 33%. So one out of three loans is not performing. So uh, on top of that, of course, the liquidity that they get is much more expensive. So you know, everything is against them. So, uh, I mean, you do understand the, the, the crisis conditions, uh, I think. Domestic banks responded by first by deleveraging, uh, but we have to think that although, uh, although deposits, although GDP is reduced by uh, 25% in the crisis period, in the six years, and deposits are reduced by 31%, uh, credit, bank credit to the private sector is reduced by 14%. So they started the leveraging, but still they kept somehow, uh, I mean, it was not a catastrophe for the uh, households and the firms. Uh, of course, the leveraging contributed to economic contraction, which contributed to NPLs, and this is you know, a vicious circle once you get into it. So, and of course, facing some banks, uh, with some banks, what started out as liquidity problems, very soon turned into solvency problems. So the stability of the banking system was really uh, it, at a difficult point and of course uh, if the stability would be at uh, risk that could have possible implications not only in Greece uh, but let's think that Greek banks by that time had branches in all the southern and eastern European area in some countries the Greek banks are still controlling 20-25% even, even higher by that time it was even higher imagine what would have happened in all the southeastern European area. I mean, a crisis in Greece would have taken uh, all the area uh, probably into quite uh, a problem. So what can you do as a central bank? You have to have tight supervision, look at, their, uh, at what they are doing, at what the banks are doing uh, every day and be very strict, continuous liquidity provision and careful cash management. Cash management is uh, something that I never thought would be very important because you go to the ATM, you get, uh, okay, you know, you go, you, you get your cash. But a certain problem in Greece, and especially in summer 2012, especially in the period between the two elections, the two consecutive elections, uh, I mean, if there was a queue in front of any ATM in Greece, there would have been panic. So we had to make sure that uh, all ATMs were full, and Greece is a difficult country, you know, we cannot really, um, I mean, send trucks everywhere because we have islands. Uh, it's, it's, we have isolated uh, uh, spaces. And we had to make sure that uh, all this logistics exercise went uh, smooth. And fortunately, we haven't seen, I mean, 
you ended up in the UK seeing queues outside of Northern Rock, but in Greece, in this crisis, with one third of deposits being withdrawn, we haven't seen a queue, which I think out, outside the bank or outside an ATM, which I think it was something which has helped uh, keeping calm. Um, so this is a crisis conditions of the banking sector. The central bank, which is a regulator, had to create, uh, I mean, you know, had to, to work uh, having in mind the following day. So the Bank of Greece set out to create a viable and well-capitalized banking system, uh, recognizing that there had to be a banking system to finance uh, in the economy after, uh, even after the crisis. Uh, and as I said before, we were fully aware that any misstep could trigger a full-scale regional banking crisis. Uh, and that was avoided. So our strategy aimed at strengthening viable institutions and widening down non-viable institutions while safeguarding financial stability. In this regard, we set up to two main work streams. One was a capital needs assessment and a viability assessment. And then we put them together to see how the banking sector had to improve its, uh, its, uh, um, its books. So we have, uh, uh, in this environment, we have to proceed with the first stress test we had. You remember it was the first uh, stress test, actually, in order to gain, when Greece had lost a lot of, uh, uh, of um, well, um, confidence and, uh, uh, I mean, we had to give it, we, to give the test, to, to be performed to a company, to somebody, an outsider, which would be credible. So this was one of the reasons we chose BlackRock, which is quite a strict uh, company. And uh, so we started at the end of 2011 with BlackRock, and then we hired Bain to help us, uh, help us um, um, find out, I mean, proceed with the final uh, stress uh, test results. So what's happening with a stress test exercise? It's that you start with your quarter one capital, which is uh, we started at uh, December on uh, December 2011. Quarter one capital was 22.1 billion. Then, according to the plan, according to the to the scenarios adopted and the bank's business plans, etc., we thought that at the end of the two years, the quarter one capital should be uh, 20.1 billion. And uh, what happened was BlackRock. What BlackRock did was uh, to find out. Uh, Basically, this thing, which is the losses from the loans from coming from uh, uh, the Greek risk, from the Greek portfolio, the Greek loans, the foreign risk, and the state-related, the state companies-related uh, risk. Uh, of course, to, that, to those losses, we had to add the PSI losses, and uh, we had to subtract the good parts, the positive signs, which is the banks had already made provisions for PSI, uh, they had already some uh, loan loss reserves. Uh, they had <coughs> kept uh, some reserves. And the capital generation assumed. So if we add all this, uh, it turned out that the uh, capital needs were 40.5 billion. So that was the first uh, stress test results. So, uh, I mean, you know, 40 billion for... Uh, uh, the capital needs of all the Greek banking system. But the point is you cannot really capitalize the whole banking system in the sense that it, the taxpayer is going to do it. The taxpayer has to, to uh, of course, provide capital for those institutions, for those financial institutions, 
which would be able to repay him, at least, or which would be very central to the stability of the system. So the Bank of Greece set out to determine those banks that would be eligible for program support. We used two sets of criteria, regulatory criteria, you know, core tier one, loan to deposit ratios, etc., and business performance criteria, like uh, cost efficiency of the bank, like uh, risk management excellence of the bank, etc., time to repay, state aid to be received, and all that. So on the basis of these two work streams, we were able to determine which were the eligible banks for public support, which were called core banks, and there were four banks, the ones you know, Alpha, Eurobank, National Bank, and Perius, and which banks were not eligible for public support and their resolution costs. So what happened with the rest, it's not that they had to be resolved immediately. They were just let, I mean, we, we let them know their capital needs and they could go and get uh, capital, you know, from private investors. If they would find the capital, I mean, the, the regulator wants the, the banks to have the correct amount of capital. So if they would find the capital from private investors, that would be fine, as happened with uh, Attica Bank. And there were a few smaller banks which were quite well capitalized, so the I mean, Aegean Baltic Bank, so then they didn't need um, uh, more additions. So the rest were left to find uh, private um, uh, investors, and those who would not, they would have to be resolved. Uh, hence, we had to decide how much money we would need for the banking sector. So for the four core banks we had, uh, we had calculated, we would need 27.5 million. And then for the resolution cost, if we had to resolve all the others, we would need 17.5. And then we said, okay, let's have a capital buffer of five. So that's how we got into this 50 billion, the financial envelope, as we had called it, and uh, which was uh, secured from, official, from the official lenders. So the crisis acted as a catalyst for consolidation. Uh, entering the crisis in 2009, uh, the Greek banking system had the 65 financial institutions. In December 2013, it had 39, almost down by a third. What's important is that the, the, the most significant part of the system is 19 commercial banks. We started with 19. We ended with 10. We started with 16 cooperatives. We ended with, uh, with 10. And we have the closure of many foreign banks, too, like the Cypriot banks or like... Uh, Credit Agricole, Societe Generale, etc. And they were absorbed. So um, we had uh, 12 banks resolved, and the four systemic banks have acted as consolidators. And uh, Pireus absorbed uh, Agricultural. Agricultural Bank was the f- number five largest Greek bank, and it was the first bank we resolved. And it was a very difficult exercise. And uh, uh, it went quite smoothly. And, and uh, that was because, you know, in Greece, we never had this problem. In, maybe in the 80s, we closed one bank, Bank of Crete, but that was a very small bank for its own special problems. Here, we had this was now a systemic crisis. We had to be very careful not to create problems and, and the, for the system uh, to get into a worse phase. So, um, so that's how we proceeded. Recapitalization of the core banks was completed by June 2013. And, uh, well, you remember this financial envelope with the 50 billion? The 50 billion were uh, to be managed by the Hellenic Financial Stability Fund. So uh, what was decided, uh, what was voted at the parliament was decided that private control of the core banks would be retained if private investors contributed at least 10% of its uh, new common equity. 
So uh, three banks managed to raise a required 10%, so they remained uh, in private control. Eurobank was recapitalized only by the HFSF, and uh, uh, Attica Bank was recapitalized without HFSF support by its own, uh, by its own um, shareholders, and uh, some smaller players had no capital needs. So um, what happened with the undercapitalized banks, those who could not find uh, funding from outside the, the taxpayer, uh, they, they uh, were resolved through the HFSF, and their good part, by resolving, we mean that we split the bank into a good part and a, a bad part. In the bad part, we usually have the loans, and actually the non-performed loans. And then in the good part, we had to put um, the liabilities, and among the liabilities, the most important were the deposits. So in all cases, we chose to move all deposits and pay for all deposits because we thought that would be uh, a central stability problem if a single depositor would lose a single cent. So in every resolution, we moved all deposits, uh, which means that the HFSF had to pay for the deposits. And uh, so, um, so what the acquirer would get would be uh, some of the assets, the good assets, and uh, the liabilities that we've chosen. And, of course, there was a funding gap, huh? and this is the funding gap which was thought as, you know, the resolution cost, huh? because the assets, a lot of the assets, were left with a liquidator because they were not good anymore. So um, uh, this is uh, quite good information, I think. There you can see it's a nice diagram, I think. It's a nice uh, table, actually. You can see... Uh, the total cost of uh, capitalization capitalization of the banks, 24.4. You remember we had calculated 27.5, but they found the 10%, more than 10%, from private sources. So the HFSF paid only 24.4. And this is the resolution uh, cost, which was not all paid by the HFSF, because in the beginning, in 2011, there was no HFSF. So we paid these resolutions from uh, um, a resolution branch of the Deposit Guarantee Fund. So uh, the total cost until now is uh, 42.4 billion. So stabilization now. So this is, you remember the diagram I had shown you about the deposits going down. This is the worst time ever. It's June 2012, 150 million, 150 billion only deposits. Since then, and of course, you know, the worst period of uh, the worst, uh, um, the highest amount of central bank uh, funding. And then you see normalization. And of course, with deleveraging, you see how central bank uh, funding needs are being reduced. Um, so uh, we have, um, uh, in 2012, from June to December, we had a return of a lot of deposits. 11 billion uh, were returned. And uh, another three returned until August 2014. <coughs> And dependence on the euro system declined. Banks under close monitoring were kept under close monitoring, but challenges remained uh, because, as you can see, NPLs were still increasing. And, uh, um, well, net interest margin was uh, still low. So, hence, uh, although things went okay with the first recapitalization, we needed a second, a reassessment of capital needs. So we had the second stress test, for which again we hired BlackRock, and uh, that time we hired uh, Rothschild to help us with the final 
calculations. So this time we don't have any PSI anymore because you know the Greek banks have no Greek bonds at all anymore. Uh, so we started reference quarter one capital, 23 billion. Refer I mean, stress test um, quarter one capital at the end, it's three and a half years, end of 2016, 17.9. What will happen in between? We have, uh, uh, this is uh, the loss projections from, from the Greek, from the uh, uh, Greek risk, from the Greek loans, from the Greek non-performed loans, the CLPs for credit loss projections for foreign uh, loans, and we have uh, the loan loss reserves that the banks have kept uh, because we were pushing them to, to help to, to keep uh, higher uh, amounts of, of reserves. And uh, we have uh, the internal capital generation during this uh, three and a half year period. Uh, so the capital needs were found to be 6.4 in the second uh, stress test. So uh, this happened into a good period because the 6.3 were all found from, the, from private sources. HFSF was there as a backstop. HFSF was still has around 11 billion in reserves, acted as a backstop for the recapitalization, but it was not used because they got all this capital from private sources. Actually, they, find even, they found even more from private sources. And all four banks have regained access to the international unsecured debt markets. So at the same time, I mean, all these are, so again, we have second stress test. We recapitalize the banks for a second time. Everything is, is working, rather, okay, there. At the, second, at the same time, we have all the developments in the EU about the banking union. We have the Capital Requirements Directive, which is the backbone of the single rule book. We have the single SSM, the single supervisory mechanism, and all the other, uh, all the other regulations that um, uh, are there in order to uh, provide um, a level, a, a level, um, a level field for all the players in the market. Uh, and actually, the four Greek banks, uh, the four core uh, banks, uh, which have uh, between themselves 90%, 92% of total assets of the Greek banking sector, uh, they are to be supervised directly by the SSM. So uh, now, since the SSM is going to take over, we have to have the third stress test. So the third stress test is being taken place now by the ECB. Uh, the objectives are transparency, repair and confidence building. And uh, actually the results, uh, I'll go a bit faster here, it's a bit technical. Um, there, I mean, the third stress test refers again to a three-year horizon, 2014-16, adopts a common baseline and adverse, uh, a common baseline and adverse uh, macroeconomic scenario. And capital adequacy at this time is uh, at 8%. Uh, under the baseline and 5.5 uh, under the adverse scenario. I have to tell you that in the first two cases, in the first two stress tests, capital adequacy had to be 9% because Greece was uh, under program. So, um, uh, I mean, this, is, this uh, stress test is uh, proceeding. Uh, we are going to have the results on 26th of uh, October. So, and uh, what will happen then? Banks uh, facing a shortfall will be requested to submit... Uh, capital plans two weeks after the public disclosure of the results. And then within six months, they have to cover these capital shortfalls for the baseline scenario. And within nine months, max, to cover the shortfalls arising from the adverse scenario. And 
the ECB-led joint supervisory team, ECB and uh, national supervisors, will have to, to assess the plans that the banks will submit to make sure they are going to be uh, fully capitalized within this time period. So um, what is happening now is, I mean, I'm sure you've heard about this 11 billion which are still left at the HSF, which act as a backstop for the banking system and which were borrowed initially and which are now in the debt. So they are accounted for in the debt, although we haven't used it, uh, but they are counted uh, already in the debt. So this 11 billion can be used as a backstop Although, I mean, uh, although we are not, after the two, after we have been through these first two stress tests by BlackRock, we believe that we've been so much tested that we are not going to see any major uh, surprises. So whatever the surprises, though, I mean, there is this 11 billion there, and uh, uh, then we can see how to proceed with the. Um, I mean, until we have the, the results, uh, we'll, uh, we'll see if we will need the 11 billion of the HFSF, or part of it, of course, not, not all, or if we can find the resources from the private sector. So um, now let's go to the real question. I mean, that, that's what's happening with the, with the banking sector. We are struggling for these six years. I mean, the regulator has been struggling to put this crisis uh, to, to contain the crisis and to put back the banking sector into its, you know, fit. Um, so the point is, okay, how's the economy going to grow with this? Uh, okay, how's the economy going to grow? Uh, will the banks be able to uh, extend credit to the uh, real sector of the economy, either the households or the the, uh, the businesses? There are, two main, there are two major preconditions for the restoration of the positive financing flows from banks to the real economy. Uh, it's the strengthening of the bank's balance sheets, which will be ensured after the disclosure of the ECB stress test and the capital actions um, proposed to cover any potential um, capital losses, and the effective NPL management. I mean, banks, um, as, as you understand, the NPLs, as I told you, it's now, they are now around uh, 33%, which is one out of three loans is not performing. It's not that with this one-third, you can just forget it. Uh, the banks are now trying to work on them. Some of these loans can be repaid. Some of these loans, especially the corporate loans, can be put together, and uh, maybe the banks can take over the firms, on, and put new management in the firms. So there is a lot of restructuring and consolidation trade taking place in the real economy now as uh, a second step of the consolidation. And uh, um, credit growth in the future will, uh, when it, it, it recovers, it will have to favor business loans, in particular in export-oriented manufacturing and service sectors. But on the other hand, I have to show you this, we've done it very recently at the bank, the relationship of NPLs changes to the economic cycle. We try to regress the NPLs uh, changes on, on GDP growth rate last quarter, uh, the spread between lending and deposit rates last quarter, and unemployment. And if you see, it's really, you know, it comes out so good statistically, but of course it's so bad in terms of the real effects, because you can see how much the, the, the growth rate is affecting the NPLs how much unemployment is affecting the NPLs, and how much this, this part, which is the spread, which in a sense, it's 
where the banks can do something and reduce it, but on the other hand, their uh, liquidity is expensive too. The liquidity they get is expensive too. Uh, I mean, how will they explain the, the NPS? So if the macroeconomic uh, situation doesn't improve, you can see that, you know, okay, you can work with the, with the NPLs, but no major uh, achievement. Actually, uh, when we split that into corporate loans and the consumer loans and all that, uh, we found that for business loans, for corporate loans, unemployment is not significant. While it is very significant for mortgages and for consumer loans. I think it's a, it's a very interesting exercise. It will appear in, uh, in the next report of the bank. So, um, I mean, banks have problem in uh, extending credit to the economy. We have to find alternative sources in order to fund uh, growth, uh, corporate bond, market, uh, bond markets for those firms who can get out to the corporate uh, to the bond markets. Uh, and we've seen a lot of uh, Greek corporates, the big ones, going out and uh, issuing bonds. There, uh, cumulatively around 4% of GDP since uh, late 2012. EIB initiatives, EIB is uh, supporting a lot with different programs, um, among them uh, supporting SMEs, um, absorption of EU structural funds, and of course FDI. In uh, between 2009 and 2014, inflow of FDI is uh, exceeding 7 billion, outflow is 4.3, but the outflow is not necessarily a bad thing in the sense that it may be Greek investment saying the volume, so it's, it's a good, it may be a good thing. And the net inflow has been um, close to, to 3 billion. So to conclude, uh, the Greek banking system is undergoing profound structural change. At the end of the process, it will emerge stronger and better placed to play its role in uh, financing the economy. Uh, the reform of the euro area architecture is also making a more complete monetary union, and this is helping the stability of the system. Considerable progress has been made with the banking union, and we have to be a bit proud there, not least under the Greek presidency of the EU, uh, when the BRRD was uh, concluded. Uh, banking union will help to break uh, the connection between sovereigns and banking sectors, which was what caused uh, the problem in the Greek banking sector, actually, initially, as we said. At the same time, though, we have to start thinking that non-bank funding will have to undertake a more active role in financing the economy, not only in Greece, but in the EU as well. There I have to tell you that uh, you know, the, Greek eco the, the European economy is, uh, is, 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 is bank-financed, maybe 80% bank-financed and the 20% is from capital markets, while the opposite is true in the States. So maybe we have to become actually the euro area economy uh, versus the states. So maybe we have to start, uh, and we have already started, becoming more uh, less bank dependent and more uh, capital markets uh, oriented, which is going to, to be uh, to provide you know necessary funds for this difficult period uh, until growth resumes. So thank you. Thank you, Eleni. You told me that you have timed uh, the presentation, and you did exactly that. It was, uh, was exactly on yeah. time. Well done. Um, you may want to take a seat here, and we will open up uh, to questions and answers from uh, the floor. I, I'm just so tempted to start with a, a question myself. I had all these kind of small questions about banking, and uh, uh, it, 
you know, economy questions. But then the last point you said was uh, was very interesting. Uh, at the European Institute, we we teach a lot about the political economy of Europe, and one of the things we tell our students is. is uh, you know, if, if you compare the, the coordinated market economies of Germany and perhaps France, uh, um, you have really what you said, the, the, especially in Germany, the bank-based system where you have long-term relations and this gives stability to the system. In systems which rely more on uh, uh, economic opportunity, if you want, uh, like the construction world, you have the capital uh, markets, the asset markets that provide the liquidity to, uh, to companies. And I wonder whether this this proposition of of Greece as part of the of the European Union having to move to this uh, more asset based financing entails dangers in a, in a, in, a, in a system that is unstable and has the the tendency to produce uh, instability. So you know, not very well functioning, not very well regulated economy, maybe. You know, you need a safe and conservative banking system to stabilize things. Uh, so, can you respond a bit to that? So, I mean, we have many, many uh, asset price crises in uh, in Greece anyway. So, you know, the banking well, system is a pillar. No, no, our banking system will continue being a pillar. The point is that we see that uh, we have negative credit expansion, negative credit, negative bank credit expansion, not only in Greece, in the eurozone as a whole. So you see that the banks cannot respond anymore because they have to improve their balances. Uh, and uh, so what can you do? I mean, if you, don't, if you cannot have uh, funding from the banks, you have to turn to other sources. So uh, the, the most obvious source to turn to would be the capital markets. If you have uh, uh, good enough firms which are rated and can get into the capital markets, then you can, they issue bonds, they issue five-year bonds. Why this is more dangerous than, uh, I don't know, uh, getting a loan from a bank for five years? It's, I suppose, no, I don't, I don't see any danger there. I see actually that this is a logical consequence of the crisis, and I think it's a good direction uh, for the euro area system in general to, to, to get into, you know, uh, to, to proceed. Uh, I'm not, it's not that the banks will stop doing their job. It's, you know that the banks are going to be... I mean, still now, you see that the, in the euro area, credit expansion is negative, which means that the banks are all afraid because they, they're expecting the, the stress tests and they are not extending any loans, waiting for the stress tests to be uh, declared, uh, to be published. And uh, uh, what can the firms do? I mean, those who can get out into the capital markets, they should get to the capital markets. Thank you. We'll open up to uh, questions. I'll start with the lady at the back. Hi, my name is Angelica. I'm an LSE alumni, and I have uh, two questions. One, you said that next quarter or next year you expect uh, Greece to actually turn into growth, and I was wondering where do you expect that growth to come from? And um, second, um, I find it quite impressive that in March 2012, Greece restructured its debt uh, at 20 cents on the dollar, and now it's raising um, debt at 4.75%. So I was wondering, I mean, what would happen if Greece cannot go back to the market and raise debt in the single digits? Well, uh, first about uh, the growth, uh, where, I mean, the, the central bank's forecast is that uh, 
there is going to be positive growth in the third and the fourth quarter of 2014. So on average, 2014 will end up with some positive, uh, small but positive uh, um, sign. And uh, the about the PSI, uh, what do you? I don't understand your question. Did you say that Greece would have to go out? No. Well, well, actually, I wanted to know where, where you think the growth would come from. Uh, oh, the growth. Question. Yeah, the growth has to come from uh, you know the tradable sector. That's what all the all I was uh, arguing for. It's uh, it's growth can come only from the tradable sector, and the tradable sector is not only manufacturing goods; it's uh, services where Greece is, is really doing very well in tourism and shipping. And they, are both, I mean, they both did very well this year. Um, on top, uh, we can export a few things as well, and there has been an increase in exports. At least, uh, you know, there is always this difference between the Eurostat and the, the central bank data on uh, uh, foreign trade. But at least according to our data, uh, there has been a positive um, growth in, uh, in, in exports. Uh, this year. So um, there is no other way. I mean, I can't see any other source for growth but the growth of the tradable sector. Maybe energy could be a sector, but, you know, we still don't know. So I think there was the other question. Yeah, and, and the second question for was, was basically, I mean, what happens if Greece cannot raise, cannot raise capital in the market in the single digit like it did at the beginning of the year? I suppose it will have to stay uh, within... Actually, Greece is still within a program. So um, uh, for the moment, I don't see why Greece would have to go out to the markets, except if there is an agreement. But if there is an agreement, I suppose there will always be a credit line and, and some conditionality, of course. So this is what I'm thinking. Okay. And Hi. Uh, I've got a gazillion of questions, but I will only ask two. Uh, the first one is that you placed a, a, a very informative table on the restructuring costs, the resolution costs of the banks. And I have a very quick logical question. Uh, in the case, uh, I mean, I was skimming through it. Uh, in the case of the Pro Bank, the total recapitalization cost would be 233 million. Two billion, around 2 billion, yes. 233 million. And whereas the restructuring or you know, the resolution costs were 795 million. Uh, I just want to question the logic. Why would the taxpayer pay 795 instead of saving the bank with 233? That's my first all question. Then you save all this rotten system. Uh, I mean, you cannot really put the taxpayer put money when you don't expect this money to be returned to him at a certain point. But the I mean, this is the whole exercise. No, you cannot do this simple arithmetic. This is too naive. You have to see the future of it. Yes, I'm seeing the future. Uh, the next. Wow. <laughs> it wasn't me. Uh, my next question is: uh, In the case of the NPLs, why did Greece decide against segregating the NPLs in a similar form like? Uh, uh, Nama or Sarup did in uh, Spain and, uh, and Ireland, and instead they've chosen to leave the NPLs with the banks. No. In the case of the resolved banks, uh, the NPLs went to the liquidator. Uh, they stayed with the old bank, with the liquidator. And uh, in the case of the core banks, 
the, they have to work on their NPLs. So the NPLs would stay with the banks, effectively having four bad banks? Well, it's not exactly that the core banks are bad banks. It's that they have some NPLs. That's a very big portion. I mean, Actually, don't forget that when they acquired the other, whatever banks they acquired, they got them clean mm-hmm. with no NPLs. So they have only their own initial NPLs to decide how to work on them. So uh, the regulator believes that a bank which has 33 going into 40% NPLs is a bank that can actually function in a proper market. Okay, I'll take this as your last yeah. of your gasoline <laughs> questions. Well. <laughs> Helen, if you want to respond, but then this gets very technical. Well, uh, I mean, we have to take into account that the, ta- the taxpayer is footing the bill and we cannot really impose another cost on the taxpayer. This 50 billion have been enough and for the moment they have covered the loss of the system and we believe that 50 billion is going to be enough. Don't forget, in order to make a bad bank, you need the money for the bad bank. Okay? So uh, we have made all the calculations and we've seen that this was uh, the best way to proceed for the taxpayer. Yeah, I want to ask something about um, the causes because these have some implications for the solutions. I was struck by a slide which you put up which showed private credit growth. Now, we were always led to believe that Greece was different from some of the others because Greece had a uh, public finance and public debt problem, whereas countries like Ireland had a private debt problem. But there was actually a picture which you put up which showed the development of private credit in Greece. It was truncated at 2007, but over that period of 2007 to 2009, the growth of private credit was quite enormous, according to that picture which you put up. And I wonder whether you Do you remember which slide it was? Well, it was, I think it was, it was when you'd got into the banking sector. Actually, what I said was that the private uh, credit was uh, less than 100% of GDP, which meant that the banks were quite cautious. Yes, but in between 2007 and 2009, there was an enormous explosion in the volume of it. Oh, maybe it was... uh, You had a a picture which started off like this and then went whooshed up like this and then it sort of flattened out at a certain point. Okay, this one, private sector credit. This one you're talking about. Yeah. I wonder whether you could could comment upon what, what lay behind this growth of private credit, even if the level was relatively low, it seemed to explode at a certain time. What yeah, but it's not really an explosion. I mean, it was like 250 and it went up to 260. Did you call that an explosion? Well, I mean, the picture which I can see yeah. is very low and then it goes whoop like that between 2007 and 2009. No, I think it's not a picture. No. No. Or you have the wrong impression. It was, uh, well, I mean, yeah. I can see it in front of you there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's what I'm telling you. It's, uh, it was like 250 and it went up to 260. It's, uh, it depends on the scale you have on the diagram. If you mean this one, yes, I mean, it's 250 here and 260 no, here. Yes, I'm talking about the early part of that. 2007. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you had the same in all banking systems. Well, that was actually the problem, wasn't it? Actually, the problem was that there was an awful lot of private sector credit expansion, not only in um, places like Ireland, but elsewhere. And I mean, I'm saying that because that was going on... But still, don't forget, GDP was like 245 or something like that at that time. So it wasn't so much higher. I mean, it was around 100% of GDP. Okay, but changes, you have to, when you refer to a ratio... If I it's may add to the discussion, that was that expansion was funded because at the same time we had a doubling or trebling of, of deposits, private sector deposits with the banking system. So it, 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 it wasn't as bad as as it may appear in at first sight. And actually, I mean, this this has this goes together with what I said in the beginning. But the growth rate of the economy was on constantly four percent of GDP every year. On so on average. Of, on the basis of credit expansion. Yes. Oh well, this was a problem. Yeah, was everywhere. Yes, exactly. I will rely on, on Kevin uh, for the next question, which will be non-technical. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> you steal my thunder in terms of. Uh, I was about to say, say that I would like to pursue this highly technical question. <laughs> I was more uh, intrigued by the comment that you mentioned about the non-performing loans and the leverage that banks might have over managements of firms. Why should we be optimistic that Greek banks would be able to improve this management? Well, if they don't, they will have losses. So it's their only chance. I mean, it's, you know, they have to, otherwise... Yes, but the, more I was thinking in terms of their capacity to put in better management. Well, I mean, there has been a lot of discussion in Greece about their fish farms, which uh, was supposed to be a good sector, growing sector, etc. And then, uh, you know, they got a lot of loans and uh, they did not consolidate. So probably what happened now was that uh, one bank, by acquiring, say, Pyreus, by acquiring Agricultural Bank of Greece or by acquiring... Uh, Millennium, or I don't know what else, or the Cypriot branches. Maybe now they have together all the loans of you know a certain fish uh, uh, farm company, so they can uh, uh, they can be. I mean, having concentrated all the loans, they can be much more decisive. They can have a much more decisive role uh, about you know how the company is going to be run. So I mean, this is their hope. Otherwise, what can they do? It's uh, you know they have to let it go, and they're going to to lose it all, so it's, uh, I think they have the right incentive to try to make the firms perform. I think we'll see consolidation, the same, I mean not the same, but in a similar way as we've seen consolidation in the banking sector, we will see it in many other sectors. Uh, maybe you will see in the fish farm industry, you will see you know, many, I mean, uh, larger, few larger firms coming together, or you can see it in other sectors, maybe construction or other sectors. And uh, well, we'll see, I mean, the Greek economy is in a restructuring phase. Uh, Hi, I've got two questions uh, really quickly. You seemed very confident um, that Greece will always have a credit line uh, with some conditionalities attached, but basically this is exactly what Samaras wants to finish now, that he wants to exit the bailout out early. And also, um, Greece is facing the risk of early elections in, in, in the coming months and a very high risks, according to the opinion polls, that an anti-bailout party will, um, will come to power. 
So how, how would you expect Greece to navigate this period and, and you know, what will be the result of it? And, and the second question um, is related by the government's plans to, uh, to negotiate some sort of a debt relief. Um, so how would that be possible um, without being in a bailout program, program with conditionality still? Um, yep, yeah, I think that's it. Uh, well, I'm not a politician, so I cannot really tell you what's on the mind of you know, one party or the other party. What I can tell you is uh, the facts uh, that I showed you, and uh, uh, that, um, well, I believe that uh, if we can borrow or not from the markets, that is shown by the spreads which are decided by the markets every day. So I suppose, uh, you know, every politician will have to decide what to do according to the picture he sees on his screen every day. So I cannot really, you know, make any political uh, uh, assumptions or anything like that. It's, it's, not, it's not my job. Well, thank you. There was another question about um, that really. Do you see that as likely? Um, what, what, how, how would it look like um, for Greece to be in a, more, in a um, position where um, any, any sort of discussion about that really won't be necessary anymore? Again, this is a discussion which is done by the government and by the public, uh, the PDMA the public uh, the debt uh, management agency. So it's not up to the central bank. So I don't know how they are doing that. I could see that this would be very difficult if there is no some kind of credit line or some kind of program or credit line with some kind of conditionality. I can see this could be difficult, but I don't know what uh, uh, they have discussed. I can take two uh, questions. Um, I'm, I'm confused of uh, one of you saying the multiplier of the raising taxes is actually greater than expenditure one. Because like to me, my own kind of common sense actually, um, maybe you are saying in terms of to paying the debt actually for a kind of physical no, uh, tightening measure. On the growth of GDP, apparently, it's uh, much worse if you raise taxes, if you reduce the deficit by raising taxes than by reducing government expenditures. So actually the, the government policy is exactly cutting expenditures. One. Or? It was mainly raising taxes. Mainly raising taxes. Yeah. But if it raises taxes, then it surely should, like, um, influences the so, speed uh, I mean, of economic growth. Maybe uh, you don't have to compare it to another country because uh, it turned out that uh, you know the IMF had a, uh, a multiplier in mind which was not the correct one. So it depends on the conditions of each country. In this case, you have a country with a low savings rate, uh, with a rather closed economy. So it depends on the other conditions of the economy. Okay, the gentleman on the line. Uh, as you pointed out, the 10-year um, yields are hit, almost hitting 7% now. And I suggest it's starting to be the, the impacts of America's Federal Reserve tapering that are starting to cause these shifts, just as the, the yields really came down back before the crisis and then they um, sort of, you know, just went sky high and I kind of fear that we're starting to go into that same sort of situation again yeah I mean is this a question 
Or you just express your fear. <laughs> I don't know. I'd like you to comment on the external impacts of Well, after six years living in a crisis, I know that the markets can overreact. So, you know, it can be a short reaction, it can be a long reaction, I don't know. But I mean, I've seen many changes in the markets. Uh, so, I cannot really, I cannot really tell. The markets are very volatile. I mean, there is. That's what's happening to the same emotion. Actually, no, we're not. See, uh, if you are talking about uh, Greece, no, we don't have any capital. Uh, actually, even the, the deposits are increasing. Uh, even um, uh, the cash management is uh, recording uh, returns of cash, which has been hoarded during the crisis years. So we don't have any any indications that there is, uh, you know, a problem building up now. But of course, you know, there are some political statements which affect the markets, which overreact, and then there is a correction. So we'll see. Okay. Any question here? The consolidation and the reduction of the number of banks to four was necessary. We all understand that. But do you worry that by raising the barriers to entry into the banking sector, that this may stifle innovation and competitiveness in, 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 in the future? Okay. This is a very interesting question in the sense that the banking sector is not an ordinary sector. Uh, it's not really that you have uh, the more players means uh, the better results for social uh, uh, welfare. Uh, it's not. It's it's you have always to to uh, think about uh, uh, on the one hand, uh, well, reduced competition. On the other hand, increased fragility. So the banking sector is is, is a more. I mean, it's a different sector really. Uh, yes, I believe that um, uh, four banks could have uh, uh, competition. I mean, it's any sector with four companies would say that it's highly oligopolistic, etc. But the banking sector is regulated anyway. So why, what we would say if there was any manufacturing sector with four firms, we would say that this is a highly oligopolistic sector and it should be regulated if you know there are entry barriers, if there can no be any other firms, etc. So in this case, we have the banking sector highly regulated. I mean, I don't believe there is any other sector as regulated as the banking. So it's not that it's just like that, four firms and nothing else. Uh, and hence, I believe what's important is, uh, at least in this period, the reduction or the, the containment of the fragility of the system. And you have that uh, by this consolidation. And actually, you see consolidation. Uh, two days ago, the ECB published the, the structure again. The, the results, the uh, research, the study on the structure of the banking sector in the euro area, and you can see that consolidation is taking place, you know, everywhere in the euro area, even in Germany. So yes, we are. I mean, we are going, I think, to, to a banking system where we will see less players, fewer players. But uh, on the other hand, we shouldn't worry that much in the sense that it is already a highly regulated sector. I think there was a question somewhere, not least. Sorry, can I just pick up on the politics again? Um, whilst obviously you don't necessarily have a view with regards to the political situation, a prudent central banker should sort of play war games and figure out what they might do what the situation, how your um, your base case of a moderate recovery would play out in the event of a Syriza win, and them carrying out what they say they're going to do, 
what sort of things would uh, uh, would you plan for in a contingency of a of a Syriza win, and how would that derail? Uh, well, yeah. Well, for that, you have to ask Mr. Stornaras, uh, who I think is going to come to give a seminar. So he's the one now in charge, and he's going to tell you about contingency plans. I mean, we've done our contingency plans, and we spent the six years fighting the crisis. And uh, this is all I can say. Okay, I think we should take one last question. I'm reminded that Chris is playing in a few minutes. Uh, yeah, yeah, very yeah. important. <laughs> <laughs> Very quickly, maybe I can come back to this sort of core issue. Can you hear me now? Better. Can we come back to the core issue of how Greece progresses in the future? Where does the growth come from? You presumably, in doing all your stability uh, stress tests for the banks, have to come up with a view of where you think growth can come from in the economy. and I'm mindful of your very early slide where you, you were talking about the, the fiscal adjustment and the fact that the choice had been made very much to just uh, deal with the fiscal deficit through tax increases and uh, a certain amount of cost reduction, but nothing on structural or um, matters relating to um, the either privatisation or other things that uh, may stimulate growth within the Greek economy. Can you give us a view on where you think growth can come from in the future? Well, actually, I think I've shown that in terms of competitiveness, things have improved a lot. I think we are back to where we were with respect to our trading partners, where we were when we entered the euro, while we had lost you know, 30% of our competitiveness in the meantime. Hence, there have been there has been structural adjustment. Uh, structural adjustment continues, and you know reforms are you know the necessary uh, well uh, guideline everywhere. Uh, and uh, as I said, I believe that the only place where uh, the only sectors where that can fuel growth is the tradable sectors. And as I said, you know, I mean, shipping and tourism are the, the most uh, you know the ones that come up. First, but of course, one can think of energy, uh, one can think of logistics, one can think of uh, you know other sectors. Uh, plus, a few trade. I mean, the pharmaceutical sector is doing very well and it's exporting. It depends. It depends. I mean, there are sectors which, because of this improvement in competitiveness, have picked up. So, um, I think you know, in general, we can call it the tradables part of the economy, which has been squeezed during this third part, this first part of. Uh, uh, the euro introduction. Can I, before, before we close, can I just take the opportunity to follow up uh, this question? Lenny, you showed also earlier that, you know, despite the huge improvement in labor costs, where the current account adjustment came from was mainly uh, imports than exports. So, so, of course, lowering unit labor costs helps with exports. Uh, and surely the tradable sector is something we should look at looking forward in terms of how where growth is going to come from. But there's very good signs to tell us that growth is not coming from exports. You know, the, the, the increase in exports, despite the huge improvement in unit labor costs, uh, is nowhere near what you would expect or what you would hope. Uh, so are there any other signs to tell us that the, the, the tradable sector will, will actually be the, the, the engine of growth? Or then is there something to make us believe that we should be seriously looking at other things other than tradables 
other state of the novel sense. I mean, the only science you can look at uh, is uh, the science of uh, is competitiveness improving. If it is improving in general, I suppose you know there will be sectors uh, picking up. Uh, anyway, I mean, I cannot really choose which ones. I mean, this we are we're always referring to the obvious ones, like you know tourism, etc. But uh, you know what the the government has to do is to improve competitiveness, which comes from say even reducing you know the red tape even uh, improving the institutional uh, uh, constraints. You know, it's, it's, you can only help uh, uh, with uh, improving competitiveness and then, you know, wait until growth comes and it will come. And actually, I, I mean, having seen 25% reduction of GDP, I think, you know, as I showed you the diagram, it's uh, in this uh, diagram in the beginning, it's, uh, it's one of the worst ever crises. It's, uh, I mean, U.S. in, the 20, in 29 had lost a bit more, and then it's Latvia thing, and then it's, it's us. It's, it's an amazing reduction. We are back in 2001. So I suppose if we, if we, if the, the background, the basic um, variables are there, uh, I think we can, we can certainly pick up. I mean, growth can certainly pick up. Okay, on, this, okay. on that quasi-positive note, uh, uh, thanks everybody for <laughs>